You're listening to Free For All. Actually, it could be subtitled Freedom For All. Both fit our the content of our show. Why? Because freedom matters to all of us. And freedom is a broad topic. It means freedom from harm from each other and freedom from harm from the government. No matter which application you like, it matters to all of us. John, uh, freedom as a touchstone, is that a reasonable place to start, a place where you and I, our minds are totally in sync? Uh, you know, Bob, that's absolutely a great common ground for both you and I and I think society in general. We want freedom. All of us love freedom. We love freedom. But here's the problem. Do we love it enough to allow others their freedom? Uh, it's, you know, what a great, what a great observation. And it's sort of the golden rule on steroids. Yes. Are we willing to afford others the same freedom we insist upon having yes. for ourselves? This battle is fought on college campuses today where people want the right to express their point of view and want military to prevent others from expressing a contrary point you're, of view. Yeah. So, so. No, I was going to say you're absolutely right because it's very easy to imagine freedom when you contextualize it as, Hey, I get to do what I want to do. I get to live my life as I best see fit as I, as I think it should be lived. However, what happens when you live your life in a way that is antithetical to mine? That, that I find completely disagreeable, offensive perhaps even. What happens in that case? The tr the well, let me just help the audience understand yeah. your question. You said, I live my life antithetical to, to your views, how you live your life. Let's focus on antithetical. I am free to live my life any way that I want, that's we yes. agree on that. But just so the audience understands the great divide between us and mm. others, the great divide is you may have a view that how I live my life, even though it has no effect upon you, in your view, mm. it's wrong or I am making a mm -hmm. mistake. And you know what? As a non-libertarian, it makes you it crazy that you know how to live my life better mm. than I do. And darn it, you better fix it by forcing me to see the light. Yeah. And in other words, when I have a conversation with a non-libertarian, if they will even <laughs> talk to me, if I have a conversation with a non-libertarian, I have found a really convenient way to explain our point of view in one sentence, I will tell this non-libertarian, this heretic, this non-libertarian, as we have our conversation on various issues, you will find every point of view you have, you require somebody with a gun and a jail cell yes. to enforce your yes. point of view. I require mm. neither. Therefore, non-libertarians do not need fraud or coercion to live the life they want. Others do. You know, that's a great point, Bob. And um, I kind of even use something, um, my thought experiment, my uh, Schrodinger's thought experiment, uh, to use a quantum physics example, is the following. Imagine someone who has the ability to make the world exactly as you want it. You grant someone the authority to wave a president, a king, a despot, whatever. They have a magic wand and they'll make the world exactly the way Bob wants that world. Well, now what happens if you give that power to a president, say, and now the next guy who gets elected president 
next woman who gets elected president is someone who has the complete opposite viewpoint of you. How would you feel in that situation? Most people don't like that thought. In very practical terms, if you despise Donald Trump um, uh, and, and you wanted uh, and you're a Democrat and you're putting in all these rules, you're, you're hoping they impeach him, et cetera, et cetera. Now picture, if you're a Republican, picture someone else having that power to do it to you. It is it is the height of of arrogance to think that we know how to tell others to live. I do reserve the right, however, to tell people to stay away from my decisions. That part I, I do very strongly believe in. Don't come at me. Uh, and that's why I've always felt that the political symbol of libertarianism has always been the porcupine. Uh, a very defensive creature with all its quills and everything, but very docile. So uh, that that encapsulates liberty to me. I won't even say libertarianism, but it, it, it encapsulates individual liberty and what we should be focusing on. The porcupine, of course, is the uh, mammalian symbol of the free state yes. movement in New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire live free or die state is the home of the free state movement. Uh, The free state movement was a was a political slash philosophical viewpoint among residents of New Hampshire and elsewhere that New Hampshire being a small state with a huge legislature, 400 and something members of the legislature, each getting paid $100 a year for part-time work, well, New Hampshire, the libertarians considered them that state to be ripe for a, I don't want to sound too aggressive, a libertarian yes. takeover. And they concluded the math was such that if 20,000 non-New Hampshians moved mm. to New Hampshire, they could take over de facto voting control and form a free yes. state. That became the free state movement called the Gerlachy with the head of it for many, many years. And why do I mention all of this? Because they have every June the Pork You <laughs> Fest, which is a libertarian festival every year uh, sponsored by the free state movement in New Hampshire. And Pork You Fest is because their symbol is the porcupine. So, uh, your zoology <laughs> creds are in Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm sure my uh, biology professors uh, appreciate you uh, uh, saying that uh, after all these years that I could still recall my zoology. But the truth of the matter is that I think, listen, Bob, you and I have talked to a lot of people in our careers, either podcasting, uh, on the radio, out in the street. The truth of the matter is, and I think this has been backed up by some Rasmussen polls, most people, when questioned individually on individual issues, very much identify as libertarian, uh, what we term as libertarian. Individualists it might be a better word, uh, which is, of course, the core of America. It is the core of the American nation, a rugged individual striving to be free. And when you ask people individual questions without a pre-association to, a, to an existing party, political party, their philosophies tend to be individualistic or libertarian. We don't believe in high taxation as a general rule. We we believe in keeping what we earn. We believe in we decide our own rake's path. We decide what we want to be in our lives. People don't realize in several other nations, authoritarian nations, the state decides if you get to be a doctor. The state decides whether or not you get to run a business. We don't have that here, or at least we never did. We may be trending in that direction, but at least for now, we don't. So when you question people, they're very individualistic. But I have to ask you this. Why then are so many people in, in denial? Why do they refuse to admit that they are, in fact, libertarian? Is it an issue with individuals inherently don't know how to be collectivists? They don't know how to band together on a voluntary basis, Bob? Is it that, is it these classic case of the mean duopoly keeping out third parties? Why is it that we can't, as libertarians, get a movement going in this country? 
Who wants a movement? I don't want a movement. I just want people to agree with me. Uh, and when you say, why don't people, you didn't say this exactly, but you mm. kind of said it, self-identify as libertarians. And I say, first of all, because the Libertarian Party, which I want nothing mm. to do with, has managed to put together the world's worst public relations. Uh, yeah. So, so therefore, the brand is destroyed. Not the belief system, but the brand. And identifying with a label locks people in to an association they don't choose to be locked into. It's like, yes, I'm a libertarian, but don't worry, I'm not crazy. <laughs> but... But so therefore, when I have conversations with serious people about issues, the issues that you and I discuss on our yes. podcast all the time, I avoid the label because that's the worst attempt at persuasion you can have. People will agree with me until I say that makes you a libertarian. Then they backtrack. Yep. But I say, but I say, how about the freedom to use drugs if you wish? How about pick right. any issue in the world? How about the right to to be a doctor right. without having uh, the government yep. monopoly give you permission? Everybody, I never have disagreement, so I jealously avoid or aggressively avoid the label lest it taint my argument. And if I can just keep the conversation on yeah. the merits, I got them. I don't care if they therefore become a libertarian. Right. I just care that they they agree with me on the issue. Then Yeah, the see, I, it, it's a conundrum to me. It's, it, it is literally a thought experiment, and it's a philosophical inquiry that I've tried resolving by myself. I'll spend nights thinking about this, which is why – I'm pretty sure I'm considered weird by most of my friends. But the truth of the matter is, how do you institute a policy of liberty, of individualism, within the context of groupthink, within the context of a democracy? Now, I've said this once. I've said it a lot of times, Bob. I'm not interested in a democracy. I'm interested in liberty. Democracy is merely the tyranny of the majority. Now, is it the most benign form of tyranny? Perhaps. Is it the only practical implementation of government that we can have? Unless you're an anarchist, you might be tempted to say yes about that. So how do you convince people that, hey, we're a collection of individuals, which sounds oxymoronic, I grant you. We're a collection of individuals. We would like to see the whole country be, in essence, a collection of individuals. We want to persuade you of our opinion. Part of that persuasion has to involve getting involved in the machinery of government. How do we do that? How do we do that without corrupting ourselves? Forget the actual name. Let's say we came up with the most ad-friendly, PR-friendly name other than libertarian. Whatever you want to call this. The, the happy kitty pizza-loving party. Whatever. Um... How do we convince people that we're not like everybody else? Because, you know, there's an old meme, libertarians plotting to take over the world and then leave you the hell alone, right? That's that's one of these libertarian memes you see. I agree with that. How do you get people to believe that? How do you get people to, to not think of you as exclusionary to some extent? John, you must have, I just heard a confession mm that you are profoundly insecure. Hmm. I feel like I feel like you've turned this podcast into a support ah, okay. <laughs> to help you overcome and here's what I mean. And I say that course, with great affection. Course. Here's what here's what I mean. I don't care what other hmm. people think. I would I would like them to be in the program, but so long as they don't impose what they think to my to the detriment of my freedom, I have no interest in convincing them to change their way of thinking. So long as they don't use the power of the right. vote 
to interfere with my life. What they think in the privacy of their own gray matter is kind of up to them. So I, I have an interest in, in explaining so they understand the cornerstones of why I think what I do. And I always say both when I practice law, when I'm trying to make a point on my podcast, right. and when I'm talking to my friends, I my observation about human interaction is in general, I find somebody telling me their opinion is like, what could be more boring? <laughs> oh, my God. And maybe that explains why I have zero <laughs> friends. Maybe. Or maybe it's deeper than that. But th that that calculation, I have zero friends, is an accurate calculation. Okay. So if I don't care about your opinion, am I like just disinterested in humans? No. I profoundly care why you mm. think it. I Tell me not... Well, I think the death penalty is good. Tell me right. why. And let's talk about it. And let's talk about the state killing people in mm. your name. And the state could be wrong. And we'll have that right. conversation. And when you say, show me your work papers, as the accountant did me, show me, show me the backup data, that's a conversation which I never want to end. It's no, I fun. I agree with so, you, Bob. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I agree with you. I'm not looking for other people's validations. I am acknowledging the reality that in a democracy, there is no such thing as being left alone. There is no such thing as somebody else not using the coercive power of government against you. There is no such thing. So to the extent that the only way you and I can be free, even if you're not an anarchist, let's say you're, you believe you're a minarchist, you believe in the limited government, a government that only protects uh, so-called negative rights, uh, the way the Constitution actually uh, attempts to do, right? How do, you, how do you act as an individual within that context of a democracy? Now, persuasion, obviously, is our biggest tool. As you said, tell me why you think something. Let me and you talk about it. Let's see. And that's why, honestly, dovetailing a little bit into subjects here, that's why free speech is so important. And absolute free speech is so important. I need to understand your ideas. You need to understand my ideas. We have to be able to have forums to discuss our ideas, to debate our ideas, to get angry over each other's ideas. Because that is better than the alternative of one group seizing power and imposing ideas on others. So to that extent, how do we accomplish our goal if our goal is individualism? Our goal is being accomplished. And if you ask, how did we get here? I don't know, except we make a good point. Why do I say we're getting there? Look at federal drug policy. Hmm. There was a time only libertarians, only libertarians were crying out to no listeners for the right to take um, controlled substances, have them not be right. controlled, and put whatever in your body you want. But now that's mainstream. Look at gay marriage. Gay marriage, only libertarians. Well, that's not quite true. There was the, L whatever those acronyms are, LGBT, QA, yep. uh, et cetera, QA. Uh, they were there also. Uh, for selfish right. reasons, not for reasons of overall policy. They had a personal goal, which I respect, same as goals that I have. But my goal is I want to be totally free. They, their freedom, they were issue right. specific. But fine. But they were in that degree, they were libertarian. That now has become the law of the land. So I dare say, I dare say that we on social issues we are prevailing. Now, we're doing, we're not prevailing yet on matters of foreign yes. policy. A whole other conversation. Right. But on social issues, it's been a slog. And we've been prevailing, but never once, never once in the discussion on drug policy, getting sensible, 
on solitary confinement, on the death penalty. Never once does anybody defend the position by saying it's the libertarian right. thing to do. That would be a curse. Right. But it's happening, which proves my point. Mm. And I think it is. You see, you've you've picked two good issues to, to make your point with. And not only that, take gambling. Take gambling. We have uh, all the Supreme Court has found the federal government has no interest in regulating sports betting. And so the vices, the alleged vices, which a vice is something that somebody else thinks you shouldn't do. That's what a vice is. But now we get to say to that somebody else, who cares what right. you think? We're right. doing it. So the fact is, on and on and on, there is a, to me, I'm an optimist, a clear and maybe unstoppable, slower than I would like, movement towards a more libertarian point of view, sort of back to yeah, the I, future. I, I see so, what you're saying. I have to tell you, though, that I feel that the areas that have improved, especially the social issues, I think have just come not necessarily because of liberty, but because of a weird sort source of authoritarianism that happened to align with a libertarian end. So the means justified, uh, the ends justified the means. Uh, for example, gay marriage becoming legalized was not a persuasive event in this country. It was court rulings, and they were court rulings by a particular political group in order to earn votes. It, it did not arise from general principles. It did not arise from foundational principles. Gambling. Gambling became legalized, on the federal level at least, uh, or decriminalized, I should say, because the government saw tax revenue flowing to other nations, not because they agree that people should have the right to live, uh, to spend their money as they see fit. Uh, and in other areas, we see the exact opposite. Uh, speech has become more and more regulated as we move forward. Um, um, hate crimes, which I think are an abomination. Not uh, So let me say they're an abomination both in, in deed and in legislatively. Uh, I don't think you should have hate crimes. Um, assault is assault. Murder is murder. Theft is theft. Uh, they don't need to be, uh, they don't need to have adjectives uh, 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 depending on the race of the victim or the offender. So I think these are horrible setbacks for liberty. So while I agree with you that there's been instances where there have been individual issues that have led us towards more liberty, I can't say that they're the result of a general movement towards liberty. I think they're the result of specific opportunists looking to arbitrage a, 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 a cause uh, either for revenue or more power. Well, uh, I am not that troubled by the fact that when government grudgingly gives us back the liberty we always had, such as gay marriage, gambling, and the others mm -hmm. we have, and the right to drink alcohol right. and drugs, as government grudgingly does, but then as government always does, sees an opportunity to gain from that concession of liberty, they tax it. I say, okay, it's not a perfect victory, but unless the tax is so high so as to be prohibitive, I can live with that for the minute, and then I'll separately fight the mm. tax issue. A different conversation. Mm. But first, give me my liberty, and then... We can discuss how much you're going to charge me for giving me back my liberty. So that doesn't distress me. I say it's a vi it's a victory, and it goes in the win column. Now, one point I'll make: we're going to we're going to be joined shortly by a guest, which I will introduce in a moment. But one last point about libertarian points of view: I attribute all of the successes. And the success is, I want to make it clear, the success is not that we have acquired something. It's that something, a liberty, a freedom we always had, 
but that was artificially and temporarily taken from us yes. by government. We had the liberty. We got yes. back. It's we regained the land that was always ours. Now, how did that happen? Was it because of the libertarian movement? Well, maybe in part, but most of the of these victories came from the Supreme Court. Now, what's that all about? There's been complaint in the progressive left of our country that the Supreme Court has now been loaded with, and the phrase they use as a pejorative is, originalists. Originalists, um, uh, probably recent history traces back to Scalia and to Clarence Thomas. And originalism, forget the technical, legal, constitutional law meaning. What it means in everyday language is interpreting the Constitution the way it was understood at the time, the the original intent. Now, therefore, therefore, if we got favorable gay marriage and drug policy through an originalist Supreme Court, it means we got it by returning to the country our founders gave us. So it didn't come directly from libertarians. It, libertarians are torchbearers. It came from the founders. And it was denied us, it being this collection of personal freedoms, it was denied us improperly and unconstitutionally. And it takes a Supreme Court, which looks for its wisdom on what the founders intended. And that's where it came from. So thank you, founding (laughs) era. Uh, And I I see now for our audience, our audience has has noticed that uh, the party, the John and Bob party, just got crashed. Uh, And James, uh, lest people think that you elbowed your way past the security guard, and improperly found your way to this podcast. I want to in- introduce you and welcome you to the show. Uh, uh, I'm happy to welcome to the show James Chernos- Cherneski. Uh, James is a senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, a wonderful organization. Uh, James writes about technology and innovation. Who is who on earth is opposed to technology and innovation? Uh, James got his master's in economics from George Mason University. And James, if I may, George Mason is my stealth favorite founder. George Mason, the unknown founder. George Mason was the ghostwriter of the Declaration of Independence. Nobody knows that except Thomas Jefferson knows it, and George Mason and Mrs. knew Mason. it. But so, yeah, and Mrs. Mason. Um, so George Mason is a founder. Everybody should study. What a wonderful man he was. In any event, we have uh, the eponymous George Mason University, where uh, James got his master's in economics, and James was also a MA fellow at the Mercatus Center. A wonderful economics think tank slash portion of George Mason University, which has, I think, as part of its faculty, uh, uh, Tom Tom Boudreau, Don Boudreau, who has been a guest on my show, a brilliant economics uh, scholar and professor. And we've invited James to the show. Once again, he did not crash because we have some interesting business to discuss for the next half hour. And that is the just heard Supreme Court case. It's a case mo- most of our listeners are may not be aware of. It's a case which may very well have a profound change on all of our lives and raises countless, in my opinion, countless core philosophical, economic, business-related issues that only somebody with the credentials of James can lead us through. So, James, first of all, welcome to our show this morning. Thanks for having me, guys. 
Oh, good. I wanted to make sure uh, you had good audio <laughs> and you have perfect audio. Now, now, James, um, perhaps some in our audience, um, we can't see them, thankfully, <laughs> but I heard their eyes roll as I was stating the importance of a case they'd never heard of. They think, Bob, are you talking about Roe v. Wade, Brown versus Board of Education? What are you talking about, Bob? Um, why is this case so important? Well, before us today in the public debate yes. arena is the issue of the power of social media. Should they be regulated? Should they be allowed to, I'll use a, a word, we all know what it means, but it's technically improper. Should they be allowed to censor? Should they be allowed to shadow ban? What is the... Do they have too much power, whatever the they is? Are they media or are they not media? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My head explodes. There are so many issues. So, so James, uh, introduce the topic so our audience knows what is the fight all about. Tell us about Gonzalez. Why Gonzalez? What's this issue? Uh, and what is the Supreme Court asked to decide? That's a great question. So basically this week we heard the Supreme Court hear the case of Gonzalez v. Google, which is asking the question of whether or not Google should have Section 230 protections when it uses its recommendation algorithms to promote content on its website to users. In this particular instance, there was a terrorist attack that had gone down. Now, James, I just want to interrupt for one second. Forgive me. Um, I... I Without meaning to talk down to our audience, I will make a prediction. Maybe not every single listener knows what something you and I say 425 times a day, which is 230 protection. Believe it or not, I know you don't believe me. Somebody may not know what, quote, 230 protection is. Now, one can give a really long answer but we don't have time <laughs> or a really short answer. So our audience can follow along sure. with our discussion. Yeah, so to go and put it in, in a quick sentence, section 230, otherwise known as the 26 words that created the internet, basically it's a tort reform law that says that any website is not going to be held liable for the content of its users. It's not going to be treated as the speaker or the publisher of those words. It's trying to make sure that liability is getting assigned to the proper party, right? It doesn't make sense that two guys get into a fight in a bar to hold the bar liable for that fight. We want to make sure that those people are held responsible for their actions. Um, so that's what Section 230 covers. And, and James, I'm sorry, just to tag that a little bit. Sure. Section 230 really arose out of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, yes. which under its reading may have allowed uh, parties to hold someone like Google or Twitter liable. Uh, for content that third parties posted on their platforms. So in mm. effect, Section 230 is trying to undo the, un the negative unintended consequences of a government action that was intended to regulate speech to some extent. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think people realize just how critical this piece of legislation was because the internet prior to 1996 was this... Uh, issue called the moderator's dilemma, where either if you were a website, you would leave everything up mm -hmm. uh, and not take any kind of action on the content that was on your website, or you would go and have a heavily moderated kind of website yes. and take a lot of restrictions on what kinds of content could appear there. But there was no in-between. And Section 230 was trying to strike that balance so that websites could go and take down content that we frankly don't want to see on the internet, whether that's uh, you know child sexual abuse material or terrorist beheading videos while also trying to allow for them to not be held liable if people are going and posting, uh, you know, parody or something on their website that, you know, someone might want to Right. See. And, and, and uh, the former of the two moderators' dilemmas that you mentioned, like meaning allowing everything to go up, we'd call that a platform, right? And heavy moderation would make you a, pub a publisher the same way you would be in a magazine, correct? So if you were actively moderating... For example, if I, and I, as a site owner in the mid nineties, if I run a sports site and I don't want political um, talk on my board, if I actively deleted all the political talk and kept just the sports talk, I'm acting as a publisher of sorts, correct? What, what I would actually augment it to say is it's more of a distribution question, hmm. okay. more so than a platform versus 
publisher uh, issue because Section 230 actually doesn't have any distinction between the two. Ah. And for all intents and purposes, every website on the internet is a publisher. Mm. Um, it's just a matter as to whether or not you are the owner of that, the speaker of the individual content in question. Again, going back to that central issue of if somebody is on Twitter and defames Donald Trump, is is that Twitter speech? No, it's somebody else's speech. So it doesn't make sense why Twitter would get sued over that. And that's why Section 230 remains in place so that that person can go and speak freely online without that company being worried about getting sued to oblivion by somebody like, let's say, the former president or someone else. And that's um, the, and yeah. to channel to channel um, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, um, a very, I think, helpful way to explain the issue is the New York Times publishes a newspaper. Everybody knows if you write a letter to the editor of the New York Times, they have no duty to publish it. They have entire control over their medium, their platform. Of course they do. They're limited by space considerations. They're limited by trying to make money. Nobody would deny New York Times the right to say, this is stupid, we're not going to publish it, or this is defamatory. And therefore... The New York Times exercises control. The consequence of that is if something is published in the New York Times, an op-ed piece that is uh, James mentioned tort reform, that is defamatory by the standards of tort law, not a crime, defamatory, the New York Times could be held liable. Now, so that's one model. The other model is, and I'm going to make reference to something Nobody even knows what I'm talking about. It's going to be a telephone. Okay. Uh, is that when, take the telephone company. If I say on a phone call between myself and John, something defamatory, is the telephone company liable? Well, of course not. They have no control. And if you had to make them liable, the phone as an instrument would have to be closed down. And that's kind of in a very broad sense. And that's how important this conversation is to the ways we communicate with one another. So the question, among others, is, is social media closer to New York Times or closer to a telephone? Now, James, so now we've teed up the issue, unless you feel... I may have misled the audience, but now tell us in a sentence, just because it's always interesting, what's Gonzalez's beef with Google? What did Google allegedly do wrong? And what is the Supreme Court being asked to decide? Yeah. So when, in this case, it's determining whether or not Google should receive Section 230 protections when it recommends a video to a user in this case, it was tied to an ISIS attack that went in Paris back in 2017. Um, obviously, Google wasn't involved in the act itself. There, there was nothing directly linking them to it. But an ISIS recruitment video had seeped through their you know, proactive measures that they do to avoid that content, had appeared in a recommendation feed. And they're trying to sue Google and ask the Supreme Court to hold them liable for said recommendation of that kind of content. And now that decision, if they were to be found liable, does have significant ramifications on broader speech online and how the Internet ecosystem works more broadly speaking. Right. Now, tell us the uh, there are lots of what can really drill down and have a, a zillion part answer to my question. But broadly, if you had to divide the Supreme Court into two avenues they could decide A or B. There's all kinds of subtleties, as we know, and they could kick the can down the road and decide neither. But in the broad sense, our audience can understand the impact on them. What are the two, speaking broadly, conclusions the Supreme Court can make, and which of those two do you, with your economic and political orientation, favor and why? Yeah. So either the court can decide to hold the company liable in this particular instance, uh, or they could choose to not hold them liable in this particular instance. The third option that I'll give real fast is that they could 
try to articulate that this is a role for Congress when they're going and basically right. siding with, in this case, Google. Um, and there's plenty of reasons why that makes sense. I personally believe that this is something that Google should be able to win um, because I think that the underlying question is is so significant that the court, it would be in their best interest to let Congress you know, be the person that's driving what policy looks like here more so than the Supreme Court. As Justice Kagan admitted, they are not the nine greatest experts on the internet. So it might not make sense for them to be the ones to try to determine its fate here. Um, and the reason why it's so important is again, when the entire internet, whether it's a Google search, a YouTube video recommendation, everything is, is presented to you as a recommendation, right? Yelp reviews uh, are, are a way of sorting something for you. Right. Uh, and, that's, and that's something that's protected underneath section 230. And I don't think that because of this particular instance, that that means all of a sudden that Google should be held liable for something that's admittedly something that slipped through the cracks. Um, so that's why I think that Google should be able to prevail in this case. And, and you know, James, to me, it's very interesting on a lot of different levels. So um, being an old coder myself, understanding uh, hands-on what goes into crafting an algorithm, how algorithms operate. Uh, for example, uh, very early on in my career, I was a game developer. And I wrote an algorithm uh, for, for a game where you were bidding against rival business owners. So my thinking was, let me create five different personalities. And I'll write an algorithm per personality to react in certain ways to certain business situations. Be aggressively, uh, uh, acquire properties aggressively. Be conservative. Look for tax shelters, whatever. And this was pre-machine learning. So my partners and I in the late 80s, just to as you could tell from the whiteness around my mouth. Uh, this was just a series of nested conditional statements, thousands of them. When we finally published the game, much to the astonishment of my uh, co-developers, the game started behaving in ways that we could not pre have predicted. Personalities started emerging that we did not. So we started out with five personalities. We ended up with 12. Okay. Now, that was great for the game but it scared us. And even without the full concept of AI uh, 40 years ago, it scared us. Now, with what we've advanced to, I can guarantee you for as much as there are geniuses in Google, they have no idea in certain instances how their algorithms, what, what the recommendation engines are going to produce. What they can hope for, much like humans, is that you operate off good whatever good is, foundational principles. Like Bob and I, we're good, we try to be good libertarians. We have good foundational principles. We kind of trust each other that we might come to the, quote, correct solution based on foundational principles. Same thing with Google, right? So that's one issue. The second issue is this concept of, is Google actively moderating or, or quote, censoring things? Um, now, there's two issues. There's a legal issue and there's the moral issue, right? The legal issue, I don't think there's any question. They're a private company. If they are censoring or, or Facebook or Twitter or anybody, if they are censoring conservatives, liberals, libertarians, whatever, that that is certainly within their right. And I even think they can do so within the context of Section 230. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of morally, I'm an I'm a free speech absolutist. I don't care. I want Nazis free to say what they have to say. I encourage hate speech. Do you know why? Not because I like the results. It's because I want to know who the haters are out there. I want to be able to identify the people that should be properly shunned by society. So I don't want them operating in shadows, which is what I think censorship and discouragement of free speech leads to. How do we resolve all this within the context of these cases? Not just Gonzalez versus Google, but there's also a Twitter case. Um, I forget who the uh, plaintiff is in the case, but there's a Twitter case concurrently at the Supreme, on the Supreme Court docket that could render Gonzalez moot, correct? Just by saying, to your point, this is a, this is a job for Congress. This is not for nine judges. This is a law issue, right? Um, yeah. How do you tie all that together? Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. It, when it comes to Section 230, that does protect the decisions that these companies are making, uh, legally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and that is so that they can tailor an online community based off of what they think 
their users are looking for. Right now, whether or not their decisions are are right or morally or morally right uh, are, is a separate argument. And Lord knows that I have had my <laughs> issues with the decisions that these companies have made over the year. I think that I'm I'm similar similarly situated to you, where I want to try to promote speech on the internet as much as humanly possible, because I think sunshine is the best disinfectant. Yes. I think like, for example, when you're looking during COVID and you saw um, a lot of action taken on content surrounding the vaccines themselves or whatever, it's not about whether or not the content itself was accurate as much as it was for me as there was too much attempt of like controlling what that conversation looked yes. like. And I think that it's way too pedantic of a view to assume that the American public writ large does not understand how to sift through information for themselves. Very arrogant. Especially as we're looking over the period of time. So I think that it, it is an interesting conversation and how you go and, you know, settle this out and blend it all together, I think is a combination primarily of, of, of civil society aspects. I think that we've kind of strayed a little too far, both on the left and the right, into liberal illiberalism, if you will, <laughs> uh, where they want to view these platforms as powerful conduits for speak, speech and messages and really what it is, is jockeying for who gets to control that channel of communication. And I think that that's very dangerous mm. uh, when you let politicians try to engage in that kind of game. So whenever they're calling these tech companies in front of Congress, it's always with the notion of you're not doing X and you should do it or we will do Y. Mm. And that's a very dangerous game. And that's where our focus is at. Like we think that the companies have every right to do what they want to do. But if we want to go and try to get to a better balance and kind of back to what the Internet was, holistically speaking, not even 10 years ago, it was nowhere near as controversial as how it's right. gotten even 10 years ago. Um, but it starts with our ability to get government's hands out of the business of trying to, you know, basically cudgel these companies. And that applies on an international stage as well as on the, you know, U.S. side. Uh, we need to start there. Yeah. James, you bring impeccable creds, <laughs> as I said earlier. GMU, Mercatus, Americans for Prosperity, you're all in. So the audience will know your answer is the result of that worldview. Now, my question, and I'm asking a question because I can't answer it for myself. So you can be sitting there sweating trying to figure out the answer, or maybe you can help me out, and this will be like a, a, a couch session between you and I. But here we have, clearly, social media has the practical ability We've seen that to affect the outcome of elections. We have a well-meaning statute, Communications Decency Act, and specifically Section 230. That act, as a piece of legislation, is pretty sensible. At least it was at the time. So that works. We have strong, the strongest in the world, a free speech culture in our society. Freedom of the press, the strongest in the entire Western world. So we have all this stuff in this pot. So forget where we are. Going back pre-1996, tell us, the audience, and I'm asking you because I want to hear the orientation born of your studies. What should the what should that landscape, the social media, doing what they want? It's after all we all say all the time: private property. Keep your hands off. Are we sincere? What should the world look like? What is the the holy grail we should be aiming towards? And I. Your answer will be, I'm telling the audience, the result of your application of your principles. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that when we're looking at, at the scale of this, it's really just an evolution because what we even understood social media to be uh, 15 years ago is different than what it is today. The internet, uh, certainly when they wrote Section 230, had this in mind as a possibility. If you look to Senator Ron Wyden and Representative Chris Cox when they came up with it, I think that they did have a broad vision for what was possible, but you don't really know until it happens. I think that as, as strong as we have those protections for, I kind of going back to my point when, when I was going with Big John, it's 
yes, we do have freedom of speech, but it's not necessarily freedom of spe speech and practice where, uh, again, you do have a lot of people that are being hyper aggressive in terms of pursuing certain uh, kinds of, you know, outcomes that they want to see happen online. And that's a that's a legitimate concern. And I don't necessarily put that on the companies. I put that on civil society in and of itself. I think that the ideal state, frankly, is that you want to have these companies continue being able to do what they do. You want to have people try to rejigger them back to a, a basic notion of Republicans buy sneakers too. Uh, I think that that's like a general good principle uh, that you should try to follow. But then also, I think that we want to try to break it away from like this big international kind of community, if you will, that some of these social media sites have done into smaller communities online, which you kind of see a little bit in Reddit, um, where it's more focused on particular issues and not necessarily encapsulating everything, even though the site hosts it all, uh, it kind of breaks down into little sub communities thereafter. So I think that that's more of the ideal state. And also just, again, people, you have to culturally shift the mindset away from where we're at right now and trying to control these mediums of communication to letting them be. And also, you know, again, letting people to their own devices and trusting them, I think. James, you indicated that the Supreme Court has the option, obviously they do, to defer to Congress and saying, we're not the right people. This cries out for the political process to figure it out. Okay, let's start there. Now, I know you probably set yourself, you'd rather set yourself on fire than be a member of Congress. I sure would, if, if given the choice. But let's assume the worst case happened, and there you are in Congress. If you were testifying as an expert in Congress, and they were asking your views, give us guidance, give us your point of view, we're stuck, what should we do? How would you yeah, answer? Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, um, where, where there are a lot of problems that are being identified by members of Congress or the media or, or other academics uh, in the real world trying to lay the blame at social media, I think that that is being uh, inappropriately balanced uh, in a way that suggests that social media is the root of all evil and, and ills in our society. I disagree with that notion flat out. I think that there are a litany of things that have contributed to, let's say right now, the, the big theme is on uh, kids' mental health and safety. There's a lot that's changed in society in the past 20 years yes. that would go and represent why there's an uptick in people feeling a little more blue, uh, starting with the fact that it's okay to say you're not okay. Uh, and that's something I think that gets lost in the conversation somehow, uh, but that is worth noting. And I think that, you know, this is a moral panic in a sense where we had this back actually, John, as you're aware, with the video game industry. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, the video games are going to go and make these kids violent animals. And right. the, the, it's this root of addiction for, for men and, and, and whatnot. And it created a James, I'm going to interrupt yeah. and just take the prerogative because I'm the <laughs> oldest guy here. The, the panic you described, the moral yeah. panic, it goes back to oh, comic yeah. books. <laughs> The, most states have legislation and the California statute, which is still in, in an act, said a publisher of comic books cannot have five panels in a row evidencing violence. Believe it or not, because of the moral panic with Superman. So there is, I want to give this a broader perspective, also show my age, uh, <laughs> Of this so moral panic is nothing no. new, but but James, we have section two thirty, we have the the quote censorship, but censorship really means government, but it's not government; it's private actors exercising some editorial control, the Hunter Biden laptop and the like, and looking at all of that. Is there, and you have correctly pointed out, the law never is always breathlessly lagging behind technology. Yeah. It never has the right statute for the technology. It's always playing catch up and always will. In that environment, is right now the legal landscape, legislation, Supreme Court doctrine, how we feel about free speech, is it okay 
does it serve us now or does it require a huge change or a tweak or nothing? I think that broadly speaking, that Section 230 has been a net massive boon for conservative and libertarian voices online. I think that I would equivocate it to like when we repealed the Fairness Doctrine uh, for radio back in the day underneath President Reagan. It was, you don't get Rush Limbaugh without the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine. You don't get these amazing online voices, whether that's like a Ben Shapiro or a Joe Rogan or a Young Turks, like none of that happens really as easily, let's say online, especially uh, without Section 230. So I think that because Section 230 empowers so much speech on the internet, that it is too critical to go and do a death by a thousand cuts approach of reforming it or repealing it is even worse because then that sets us back to the pre-1996 internet which I think we want to avoid. Uh, I, I think that that's something that can't be overstated enough. Like you have to recognize that Section 230 is what empowers us to discover new voices online, like your show or anybody for that matter. And if we're going to go and put liability on these companies for different reasons, oh, well, you took down something that was constitutionally protected speech. It's a proposal that's sitting out there in Congress right now. Mm. Sounds great in theory, but there's a lot of constitutionally protected speech out there that perhaps your average user, user doesn't want to see. And I think the best example of this was um, there was this uh, you know social media alternative app called Gap. Um, that was Getter, sorry, Getter, uh, that was introduced into the ecosystem. And it was based on the notion that we're free speech absolutists. And then all of a sudden they realized that they weren't because a bunch of furries went and overran <laughs> their website uh, for their social media platform. So I think that there are lots of trade-offs to policy we have to be very cognizant of. I think on the flip side, there was a uh, SESTA-FOSTA, which was trying to deal with sex trafficking. That was passed back in uh, 2017, 2018, that was the last time that something has been done to Section 230. And let's look at what happened there. It didn't go and actually solve any of the underlying issue when it came to sex trafficking in and of itself. The law itself has only been invoked three times since its passage. And Backstreet, Backstreet, yeah. and two, Backstreet and yes. two others. So it's only been enacted very rarely, and it's not actually solving any of that underlying issues. And simultaneously, by the way, it's exposing sex workers to increased violence because they can't go and vet their clients online before they meet up with them. Yes. Regardless of how you feel about the underlying you know, service being performed there, I don't want people to be exposed to more likelihood of being violence enacted against them simply because we're worried about this other issue, which is valid. It's just about what's the best route of tackling it. Yeah. So I think that we've got to be very careful when we're doing something legislatively, because especially on the federal level, once you pass something, it's going to take us decades to go and fix whatever it is that you did. If if they so even that would urge against. Yeah, James, I'm sorry. I was going to tell you, even if uh, they go back and fix it, which a lot of times they don't, they just create new, more horrible legislation to cover the ills of the previous legislation. Yeah. So I kind of, uh, to be honest with you, uh, and maybe we can sort of wrap it up here, but I agree with you almost entirely, and I would liken it to capitalism, free speech to capitalism, and the two are very closely tied, obviously. The old adage, capitalism is the worst system on the planet, except for every other system that's ever existed. So to me, that's what we're talking about here. Free speech has its downfalls. Uh, it has its shortcomings. Like you said, if you're committed to free speech, that means allowing the pedophiles to speak out. It means allowing the Nazis in Skokie, Illinois to speak. It allows them to have a parade, the alt-right, whatever, the, the uh, Antifa, the BLMs. But what are the consequences of trying to actively monitor that? What are the consequences of, of government passing specific laws as each type of speech arises? Let's pass a law, yay or nay, yay or nay, yay or nay. That to me is much more dystopian, much more frightening than the concept of let everyone speak, I choose who to listen to. And maybe that's the focus. Maybe the focus is for these social media platforms to either I'll give you the option of disengaging from recommendation engines, so you only hear from the people you follow. And I love the Reddit uh, example you brought up because Reddit is a social media platform, but it has self-moderation. So if I join a satire site that's G-rated, I can't complain that I'm not allowed to put R-rated memes on there, right? Because I joined this, willingly joined this community that says, we're only interested in putting up family-friendly memes. But Reddit itself makes no. I'm sorry, have, but but Reddit itself makes absolutely no restriction on what kind of community you could set up. So maybe that's the model. Maybe the Reddit model 
might be the best that we can hope for. I always start off, I guess I get the last <laughs> word accidentally. I always start off, you can't go, go astray if you start with Clarence Thomas. Um, and I, I'll start with Clarence Thomas. And I will say, uh, the audience doesn't know this, but my day job is, I don't have it on my resume, but my day job is I manage Earth. Uh, that's my job. And I, I'm in charge of it all. So I have to figure out the solution. And the solution that I came up with is more nuanced and therefore, no doubt, impractical. <laughs> but I struggle to find a solution because I am deathly concerned. I am deeply concerned about the power. Look, any concentration of power mm. scares the heck out of me. And I am just concerned, per se, about the concentration of power. Economic power doesn't threaten me that much. But this power, power over access to somebody's mind, scares me. So with that as a starting point, I, I, am, I found myself a bit persuaded by Clarence Thomas' public utility model. And I would say, and putting together free speech rights, putting together Section 230, which is well thought out, I say social media is asked to make a choice, a business choice. Are they going to adopt a model which is the New York Times model? And they will exercise total editorial content. They will decide what you as a user get access to. They will decide who gets squelched and who doesn't. They say, if you sign up for my platform, that's what you get. And we have total control. That's number one. And with that total control comes 230 liability, comes the liability. Like the New York Times, they want control, they exercise control, and with it comes liability. Or they voluntarily, as a business model, elect the pure 230 approach. We have, everybody can speak. We will not exercise, we will exercise almost no editorial control, but we will give the user to refine with great specificity what kind of information they want. Do they want to sign up for our selection on commercial items? And all the power is in the user, the customer to decide no hate speech, no Nazi, no this, no that. And everybody gets just like, and I use as a rough analogy, do not call. We have given the power to deny people the right to call us. Do not call. If they violate that, they have a, they have a liability problem and maybe a criminal problem. And let the operator of the platform decide which model they want to sign into based upon their own calculation of what's more profitable. Everybody gets what they want. Users get the content they want. Business people get to build their model the way they want. And we are recognizing the power that these people have and to select who gets to be deplatformed and the like. Now, not perfect, but I just find when I put it all into the stew pot, that's what I come up with. Um, I'll give we have we're running out of time. We always stay our welcome with our guests. So, James, any parting thoughts on John's comment, mine or, uh, or what our audience should look to as they follow the Supreme Court? And Congress. Yeah, I, I think that this is a very important time in tech policy. You've got to be on, on it because your voice is what matters here on the internet. And there are a lot of bad ideas out there that will go and have a negative impact on your voice online, uh, whether it's a Section 230 reform bill or some kind of hate speech bill. And don't discount the fact that our international adversaries are also looking to this as a way to go and undermine free speech online. You had folks at the World Economic Forum not that long ago saying, hey, we have to reimagine what's, you know, what free speech looks like. 
Uh, and we got to be very wary of that. The European Union would love nothing more than to be able to impose their kind of very heavily restrictive regime of regulations on speech in the United States, even though we have the First Amendment to our Constitution. So we have to fight for what we have here. That's why I love doing what I do at Americans for Prosperity. We fight the good fight on so many issues, including ones like this. And I honestly can't thank you guys enough for having me on today. James, how can our audience follow you? And then Big John, be prepared. I'm going to ask you the last question of the of the program this morning. But James, how can our audience you guys follow can you? Follow me on Twitter over at JamesCZ19. That's my Twitter handle. That's where you'll go and get my musings and my latest writings and media hits like with you guys. I'll certainly go and promote all that there. But that's the best place to go and follow me. Big John, my question for you is, you you old yes. gamer, you. What's your what's your handicap? What's the betting line on the Supreme Court, Gonzalez? I, I honestly, Google? if if there were a money line, and I'm sure there is somewhere, it's some gambling house in the world right now. I would put it on uh, on either the case being uh, dismissed, uh, meaning that they're going to return it uh, to Congress for a decision, or uh, based on the Twitter result, or they're going to rule in favor of Google. I don't think the Supreme Court wants any. Any part of regulating speech, or uh, they've been so heavy-handed on uh, First Amendment absolutism historically that I would be shocked, shocked if they had more than one or two dissents in this case. Uh, you might have a political justice who might, uh, seeing that he's he or she is outnumbered, say eight to one, might put in a word or two uh, for about the morality of the situation, whatever that is. But yeah, definitely. I would bet on Google or I would bet on it being returned to Congress. John and I sincerely thank yes, you, James, James, for giving us uh, uh, an hour of your time, more than an hour of your time uh, on valuable weekend time. Thank you so much. Thank you for your writing and give my best regards to all my buddies at GMU and the Mercatus Center. Thank you so much. And John, what a treat it is to share some airtime with you, my dear friend. Thank you so much. And thank you for our audience for allowing us into your lives and into your minds for this past hour. Thank you so much.